So like I said, we're starting this series, and I want to begin like this. Uh, you know, as you look up, uh, up at the uh, stage, and you see all of these boxes here today, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of a campaign. And, the ca- you know, many of you have uh, packed boxes. Many of you have done it in small groups. Uh, some of you have spent um, large amounts of money and time doing this. Um, some of you have done it in your family. Some of you have done it by yourself. But you've packed these boxes, and uh, I want to ask the question, why do this? You know, why, as a church, should we uh, have a campaign like this? And it's not just us, because if you look around the city, uh, almost every church in the city is doing a campaign like this. And it's not just this campaign. I was looking on Facebook the other day, and and I saw that uh, Compass and First Baptist are joining together to... um, uh, give meals to the homeless on uh, Thanksgiving, so Thanksgiving meals to people that can't afford it. Why do that? Um, I was also, uh, if, you, if you're going to go to the uh, community Thanksgiving worship service this year, uh, it's going to be at the, the new community center over there. One of the things that they're doing is they're raising money for the Christian Relief Fund, which is a fund in our community that gives uh, relief to people that are in financial dire straits. And I want to ask the question, why do this? Why uh, should we as Christians be involved in a campaign like this, and uh, why should we care about people that are invisible? And it's important that we ask the question because, you know, as you look at throughout history, um, so often it's Christians who've been on the forefront of caring for people on the margins of this world. And so uh, I think about a friend of mine who is doing a PhD on the first hospitals. And one of the things he, he discovered there is that Christians were on the forefront of developing the first uh, hospitals. And it's because there were no public institutions to care for people uh, that, were, that were poor and couldn't afford medical care. And so Christians developed that. I remember being in Texas and I would visit hospitals. Uh, you know, part of my, my internship there as a pastor And I noticed that almost every church in that city had a Christian name. So there was Presbyterian Hospital and Methodist Hospital and Baylor Hospital, which is a Baptist uh, institution, uh, St. Jude's there in Plano. And so, uh, you know, Christians have been on the forefront so often of caring for the marginalized in the world. Why have Christians done that? Uh, You know, you think about uh, great people throughout Christian history, like William Wilberforce, who was on the forefront of the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, Mother Teresa, you know, I I think of all the Christian pastors and preachers like Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist preacher, or, uh, you know, uh, George Whitfield, the great evangelist during the First Great Awakening, or uh, John Wesley, and all of these men, they left a legacy not only of good sermons, but also of social justice. They, each one of them left a legacy of, of creating orphanages and caring for people on the margins. And why should Christians do this? Uh, why, should, why should Christians care about the poor and the marginalized? Why should the social fabric of a community actually get better when a church is there? Right? Why should, why should a community be better off when a church moves in? You know, why historically have people who believe the Bible and follow Jesus cared deeply about the invisibles? That's what I want to ask this morning. I want to ask Why? And it's because of verses like the one we're going to look at today in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, there's a punchy little verse that is, it's James' injunction. It's James' uh, little command here to uh, help Christians care about people on the margins. 
we're going to look at it today. Uh, you know, James, uh, if you haven't read the book of James, James, uh, just to know a little bit about him, James was the brother of Jesus, so uh, James grew up at the same, you know, sitting at the same dinner table as, as Jesus. Uh, James uh, played in the, the same front yard as his older brother, Jesus. He grew up, you know, around Jesus Christ. Uh, and the thing about James is he was not a believer early in life, right? So he wasn't at first willing to believe that his older brother was the Messiah, right? He, you know, wasn't willing to go there. But James, later on in life, was converted. And he was radically changed. Uh, James became a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, James became an advocate of caring for the poor and marginalized. And James, in this book, talks about a faith that works. You know, James here is all about uh, a faith that, that reveals itself in caring for other people. And specifically, James is, is concerned about caring for the poor. And so he writes this punchy little verse. And I think as we look at this verse, we're going to find uh, motivation for caring for the poor and marginalized in our world. And I think we'll see that as we recognize three things about this verse. Uh, number one, we're going to see uh, the mark of true religion. Second of all, we're going to see the work of true religion, and then finally, the source of it. So James says, you want to care about the marginalized? You want to be someone who reaches out and sees the invisibles? You need to understand uh, the mark of true religion, the work of true religion, and the source of true religion, if you're going to do that. So let's look at all three of those here this morning. And so first, uh, let's look at the mark of true religion. And um, I am not in the book of James here. I'm in the book of Luke. Um, let me turn back there. If you're not familiar with James, it's towards the end of your Bible, and it's right after the book of Hebrews. Here it is. James chapter 20, uh, 1, verse 27. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. We'll stop there. So James says that there is a religion in the sight of God the Father that is pure, that's undefiled, that is acceptable. And, and James is implying something in this statement. He's implying that there is a type of religion, that there is a piety, that there is a form of worship that God the Father finds unacceptable. Right? Not every form of piety, not every religious practice uh, is acceptable before God. And there's some forms that maybe make us feel good, maybe that make us feel like we're making progress, but God finds it unacceptable. And so uh, notice he says that religion that God finds acceptable is this. Now notice one other thing. James here says that the religion that God finds acceptable is also undefiled. Now this is an interesting Greek little word, undefiled. It literally means undiluted. And so uh, if you've ever had a glass, you know, a, a drink, you know, and you put ice in there, and the ice melts and dilutes your drink, James says this is religion without ice, right? Or maybe you've had some soap, you know, that's concentrated, and you put water in there to dilute the soap. James says, I'm going to talk to you today about religion that is undiluted, religion that is concentrated, religion that God finds acceptable. What does that look like? And so James says religion that is acceptable, that is undefiled or undiluted before God the Father is, and let's stop there. How would you fill in the blank? You know, you know if you look at your own religious experience, you look at uh, of what you learned about church growing up, how would you fill in that blank? What is the religion that God finds acceptable? Now, in my mind, I think about my upbringing, and I would answer it like this. Religion that God accepts is going to church and reading your Bible. You know, when I was growing up, you know, in Sunday school, you got stars on your chest, and the things that were valued and rewarded were uh, going to church 
and bringing a friend to church and reading your Bible. This is, to me, the, the type of religion that God was after. But notice, this is not how James fills in the blank. And there's nothing wrong with going to church or reading your Bible. Please go to church. Please read your Bible. And that, that is very important. James talks about that in other places in his book. But here, when James is defining the essence of religion that God finds acceptable, that's not the way he answers that statement. He says, religion that God finds acceptable, undefiled, undiluted is, what does he say? Is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. And so here's what James says here. He says, here is the mark of, of the religion that God wants. Here is the, here is the, the, the one um, characteristic of the piety and the worship that God finds acceptable. It is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In other words, what James is saying is that the mark of true religion is caring for people on the margins. I want you to see that when James says this, James is not going out on a limb. Like, James is not going rogue here and saying something that the rest of the Bible doesn't say. Um, As you look, you will see echoes of this all the way through your Bible if you read it. All the way through the Bible, you will see that God, the God of the Bible is a God who's particularly concerned with people on the margins. The God of the Bible is a God who sees the people that a lot of other people don't see. And the God of the Bible wants his own people to be particularly concerned with what he cares about. And so the mark of true religion, the the religion that God wants, is caring for and reaching out to to people on the margins. Now notice uh, James uh, singles out two people on the margins. He says uh, it's to care for orphans and widows. Now this might seem kind of random to you. uh, You know, why, why, why these two? Why orphans and widows? Well, when you look throughout Scripture, uh, there are four people groups that God is particularly concerned about. And you see them mentioned all the way through the Bible. Uh, You will see these people groups, they get, you know, add time in the legal codes. Uh, They are there in the accusations of the prophets. Uh, You will see these people in the, all throughout the Psalms, the Psalms talks about these people. And uh, the, the, the four people groups are the orphans and the widows, the resident aliens, or the, or the strangers, the Bible calls them, and the poor. So the orphans, the widows, the strangers, and the poor. And these four people groups are mentioned all the way through the story of the Bible. In fact, some scholars call them the quartet of the vulnerable. Uh, these are the people that God is deeply concerned about, that God is always talking about, and he wants us to care about them too. And so let me give you some examples of when God mentions these people. So this is Deuteronomy 24. Moses says, You shall not deprive a foreigner or an orphan of justice, and you shall not take a widow's garment and a pledge. Right? And so here he's talking about justice, and justice is not only retributive in the Bible, it's also restorative. And so God says, You shall give justice to the poor and the foreigner and and the widow in your midst. Deuteronomy says that. And then you've got uh, statements like this in the prophets. This is Isaiah 58, where Isaiah says, Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So you see that there, the quartet of the vulnerable. 
This is a mega, mega theme all the way through. There's one pro- prophet named Micah, and I named my son Micah because Micah is a little firecracker. And uh, the prophet Micah is just this fiery firecracker of a pro- prophet. Talks about caring for the poor and mild, m- marginalized all the way through his book. And at one point, he says this verse that probably uh, many of us know. He says, there is one thing that God requires of you, to, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He's talking there about caring for and restoring people on the margins. And God is deeply upset when his people fail to do this. And so uh, I was listening this past week to um, Gary Haugen and uh, to a lecture that he was giving. And Gary Haugen is the, he's the founder of International Justice Mission, which is a, it's a non-profit that cares for the poor and the widows and the orphans worldwide. And at one point in this talk, he was talking, and he said, when you look throughout the Bible, uh, there are so many sins that, that, that are mentioned all the way through the Bible. But he says there are two main ones that are mentioned over and over again. And he said, in fact, if, you could pi- if, there, if sins were stones and you piled them up, there would be two big piles uh, that are represented by two main types of sin that God mentions over and over again in the Bible. The first one is, can you guess what they are? The first one is idolatry. No surprise there. You know, God always wants us to worship him above every other God in the world. God wants us to, to love him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first one is idolatry. And the second one is failing to care for people on the margins. Or failing to do justice. And so these sins are mentioned all the way through the Old Testament. It's a mega theme in the Bible, not caring for people on the margins, the vulnerables, the invisibles, the quartet of the vulnerable. Now someone says, well, this is just the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were to care for people in their midst like this. But what about in the New Testament? Well, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is always talking about the vulnerables. And so one of his main accusations against the religious leaders of their day is that they were very religious, but they, but they could care less about people on the margins. And over and over again, Jesus is saying things like, you, you tithe mint and cumin, but you fail to take care of widows and orphans. And do you remember Jesus tells this, uh, it's a vision that he gives of the last judgment. And there he gives this vision of uh, people standing before the last judgment. We read it in the scripture reading this morning. There's the sheep and the goats. And God separates the sheep from the goats. And, um, you know, some are, are into you know, everlasting joy and, and others are lost. What is the basis of God's judgment there at the, at the very end? What is the basis of God's judgment? Do you remember that? Do you remember Jesus says, uh, he, to one group, he says, depart from me. Why? He says, because I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Because I was in prison and you didn't visit me. Because I was thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink. And they said, well, Jesus, when did we do that to you? When, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? What does Jesus say? He says, whatever you've done to the what? The least of these, my brethren, You've done it to me. The basis of God's judgment at the very end is how a person has treated the least of these, the invisibles, the vulnerables. And so Jesus is saying something like this. The, the symptom of true faith is a deep social conscience. That a person who says they love me but they don't love the poor doesn't really love me. 
that a person who is involved in true religion, an undiluted religion, an acceptable religion, is also going to be somebody who cares deeply about the poor and the marginalized in this world. And so that's the first point. James is talking to us about the mark of true religion, which is seeing and caring for and taking care of the vulnerable. But let's uh, move on and we'll look at the second point, which is what is the work of true religion? What does this look like? So if this is something that God deeply cares about, what would it look like for us to do this in our lives? Well, notice uh, James uh, says it looks like this. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He says it looks like visiting orphans and widows in the in their affliction. And the word visit there is, in Greek, it's, it's an important word. Uh, it means more than simply, like, pay somebody a visit. Uh, you know, we think about visit, vi- to have, having a visit with somebody in Starbucks or visiting somebody in their home. Uh, this word means much more than that. When you look throughout the Bible, it's often used of God, and it's used of God when he chooses to save and rescue his people. And so, for example, in, in the Old Testament book of Exodus, When God goes to Moses and he says, look, I want to save, I want to deliver my people that are slaves in Egypt. He says, I've seen them and I want to visit them. The word he uses to free the slaves is visit. And then in the New Testament, when uh, in in the Christmas story, when the angel comes and speaks to Mary and he says, look, you're going to, you know, you're going to bear the son of God in your womb. He says the word, the verbiage he uses is God has seen his people and he wants to visit them, to rescue them out of their affliction. And so the word visit here, uh, it, it means more than simply pay somebody a visit. It means rescue. It means to see somebody and to take action on their behalf. It means to pull them out of their destitution. It means to save them. And so what does it look like to, to care for these vulnerables? It, it means to see them, to take action on their behalf, and to pull them out of their destitution. And what did this look like in the first century? Well, well, let's look at what it might, look, might have looked like for them. So James here mentions orphans and widows. And in the first century, in first century Rome, orphans were, were uh, they were everywhere, and it was a huge problem. And these people that James were writing to, they probably saw orphans on a daily basis. Because in Rome, if you didn't want a baby, uh, you, could, uh, you could throw the baby out, you could expose the baby to the elements to let them die um, or be taken into slavery, uh, either sex slavery or some other form of slavery. And there was no legal recourse for this. There was no social stigma uh, for doing something like this. So, so you, if you didn't want a child, and in that world, uh, if, if the child was a female, you know, females, it was a patriarchal society, and females were not as valuable to them as as they should have been. And so if they had a female child, they would leave it to the elements. Leave it to the elements. Um, if you had a child that was, uh, had f- uh, some sort of physical deformity, uh, there would be no social stigma if you just turned that child out, left, left the baby to be exposed. Uh, if you had a child that was a burden on the family, if you couldn't take care of the child, uh, you could leave the child out there exposed to the elements. And like I said, this was common, and this was something where there was no social stigma attached to it. But the Christians, what they did is is they saw these children, 
the early Christians did. And, and this is documented in the early church. They would see these children, and it was a common thing for Christians to bring these children into their families. And they would, uh, they would uh, you know, feed them, clothe them, and they would sometimes bring them in permanently as children. Uh, there's a first century document called the Apology of Aristides, the philosopher. And uh, he, he's not a Christian, and he noticed that Christians were doing this. And here's what he says. He says, falsehood is not found among them, talking about Christians here. And they love one another, and from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in to, into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And so the Christians started doing this. They would see these orphans and they would visit them. And in other words, they'd pull them out of their destitution, sometimes into their homes to take them in as family. And the pagan world took note of this. This was noteworthy and remarkable to ancient people. And then there were the widows. James mentions them, them too. And widows in that, that culture, remember this is a patriarchal society where women didn't have... Um, autonomy and value, and so a woman who lost her husband would be left very vulnerable, right? And so these women, sometimes they would be lost in, you know, to poverty and and to be uh, taken advantage of. And the Christians, again, saw them and took action and raised the widows out of their destitution. You can see all the way through the New Testament, there are uh, you know, instructions about what to do with widows and how to take care of widows and who's actually a real bona fide widow. And so Christians were, were always doing this and became very noteworthy to non-Christians uh, in that society. In fact, um, Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite preachers, he says that um, if you looked at ancient Rome, he said that the pagans were marked by being stingy with their money and promiscuous with their bodies. They were stingy with their money, promiscuous with their bodies. But he says the Christians came in and they were stingy with their bodies and they were promiscuous with their money. And this was incredibly powerful and it was compelling and the non-believing world took note and the church grew like wildfire because these Christians were taking care of and visiting widows in their affliction and orphans. But let me ask the question, how, how might we do this in our day? I mean, this is how they did it. But what might it look like for us to care for the vulnerables in our world? Well, in our world, there still are many, many vulnerables. And, and let me just think of ways that we might take care of them. So, for example, there, there are orphans, not only in our world, but in our community. Um, there, are, there are children that are in the foster care system, for example. Um, I read this this past week. In the U.S., there are over 400,000 kids in the foster care system. And 120,000 are eligible right now for adoption and are waiting for families who will take them in. And I think maybe the most disturbing thing about this is when you look at the foster care system, about 27,000 of these children age out each year when they turn 18. They're bumped out of the system and they're incredibly vulnerable. Many of them end up in prison and on the streets. But one of the things we could do is, is we can adopt or foster children. You know, maybe there's some of you in this room, you've got room in your families, and you've got room in your budget, and you've got room in your home, and you could actually adopt or foster a child. But I know that this is not for everyone, uh, and maybe you're not somebody who has this room in your home, but, you know, many of us could, could support the foster care system and support foster families. 
So there's an organization in our city called The Call. <clears throat> and The Call is um, involved in foster uh, care support. And um, what they do is they, 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 will, uh, they have opportunities where you can provide money, you know, financial assistance. You can provide diapers for kids in foster care. Um, you can uh, make meals for foster parents. Um, and th The Call is actually having a meeting this Tuesday um, at our church. If you want to go to that, you can talk to somebody in the Welcome Center. Uh, what about widows? Are there widows in our, in our, in our community? And, you know, there, there are. There, there are widows in our church, um, even. And widows deal with a lot of issues. They, they deal with grief. Um, widows deal with fi the financial burden of, not, of having maybe the main breadwinner gone in the family. Widows deal with loneliness. And many of these widows are elderly. Uh, every day I, when I go home from work, I drive down Neely Street past the, those three uh, retirement communities. And uh, the, the retirement communities, there are many people in there that have wonderful families that visit them all the time, but there are many widows there that are very disconnected from any sort of family ties. And nobody comes to visit them. No, no grandchildren are there to, to, um, to, to accompany them. Uh, we took a, a group last, uh, last November, I think our kingdom, kingdom kids did, and, and we had kids going in there, and the kids went in, and they, they made gifts, and they played music, and they uh, played with the, these, uh, these elder, elderly people, and, and one elderly widow, this woman, she said that nobody, nobody ever came to visit her, and she said, please come back. Please come back, she said. And I think about that every time I drive by the retirement communities. So how could we care for the, the, the vulnerable and the, the invisible in, in our, um, the, the vulnerable and invisible in our community? Um, there, there are people in your, in your own life that maybe are, are not officially part of these systems, but maybe they're just vulnerable and they're in your midst. The word that, that you see all the way through the Old Testament is the phrase, in your midst. Care for the orphan in your midst. Care for the foreigner in your midst. Care for the poor in your midst. And there's this idea of people that are in your immediate vicinity. People that are in your purview. And so part of, part of this is just look, opening your eyes and seeing the people that so many of us don't see. And maybe these are people, maybe it's a neighbor that is a widow that you notice nobody ever comes to visit. Or maybe it's a, a family next door who doesn't have a mom or a dad and you see these kids and, and maybe you could bring them in and, and, and they could become almost a surrogate family. And so here's the question we ask is, is, who are these people in our midst? You know, there's foster care and there's widows in retirement communities, but they might just be right on your street. And God says, do you see them? And do you take action to raise them out of their destitution? So James says uh, this is the mark of true religion is that uh, someone who is truly worshiping the God of the Bible also should have a deep social conscience. They should care about the invisibles. What does this look like? It looks like visiting. It looks like seeing the people on the margins and taking action to raise them out of their destitution, seeing the people in your midst that you might have the wherewithal to, to rescue Let's ask the final uh, question or see the final point, which is the source of true religion. Because James talks about the motivation for doing this. 
And if you're anything like me, you kind of read, you know, you, you read this text and you see the need out there, and sometimes it's overwhelming, isn't it? And you almost feel guilty, like I'm not doing enough, and, and I'm just so busy in my own life. And I've got my own kids, and I've got my own issues, and, and where do I get the mo- motivation to care for people on the margins like this? Well, what James does is he roots the motivation in God. Now notice he says religion <clears throat> that is like this is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Notice he says this, this work that we're talking about is rooted in God the Father. The motivation to be a person who is really you know, going after this sort of thing is found in knowing God the Father. How does knowing God the Father, the God of the Bible, motivate us to do uh, the, the work of caring for orphans and widows and people on the margins? Well, first of all, you see God. God James mentions God in general, and he's talking here about the creator God. And when you know the creator God, what do you know about him? You know that he created all human beings. And all human beings are made in God's image, the imago Dei. Every single human being is is infinitely valued. They have infinite dignity and worth because of the fact that God has created them in his image. And so there's a motivation. You begin to see people the way God sees them when you see them as people made in his image. You know, there are no gradations in the Imago Dei. So whether you are poor or rich or, you know, educated or uneducated or uh, you live in a big home in a nice neighborhood or a small home in a bad neighborhood, every single human being has infinite dignity and worth and should be objects of our special concern. And when we see them as image of God, it will motivate us to begin to care about them. So it's seeing uh, the way God the Father sees, but not just God the Creator, notice God the Father. You need to see God as Father. And this is so important because what James is doing here is he's rooting this sort of work in the gospel. And he's saying if you're really gonna be motivated to care for people that are on the margins, you need to know God as the Father of the fatherless. And you need to really know him, and you've got to be connected to him as father. Because what it means when you're connected to God like this is, is it means that you've acknowledged that you have been brought into God's family. Did you know this? In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, it says that all of us were orphans. Uh, not physical orphans, but all of us were spiritual orphans. All of us were, it says, strangers without God, without hope in the world. (laughs) But it says, before the foundation of the world, God predestined us to adoption. And God brought us vulnerables into his family. And what this means is that every single one of us is a member of the quartet of the vulnerable. Uh, You may not be physically poor, but all of us are spiritually bankrupt before God. You may not be a physical orphan, but all of us were without hope, without God in the world. You may not be a, a physical foreigner or refugee, but all of us were strangers and aliens. But God the Father brought us into his family. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he adopted us. And when you see what God has done for you, when you see how God has made you, you part of his family. It motivates you to care for others who are also vulnerable. 
You see what God has done for you and you want to go and do likewise. You've got to see God as your father. You've got to see the gospel. I want to end like this. I, this past week I was, <clears throat> I, I uh, saw little clips of a film called The Dropbox. And uh, this is a, a, it's a documentary and it's made of this Korean pastor named, um, his name is uh, John Rock Lee. He lives in South Korea. And this man's story is amazing. John uh, Rock Lee uh, brought in, you know, literally hundreds of orphans into his family. And the way he did it is by creating a, a drop box in the wall of his home. And so on one side of this box, there was an alleyway that was very private and nobody ever went down it. And, and on the other side, was a, it opened up into the laundry room of his home. And so a person who had an unwanted child for whatever reason could, uh, in privacy, without um, being stigmatized, go and drop their baby off into this drop box. And this pastor would take him into his home. And most of the children left in the drop box suffered from some sort of mental or physical deformity. But for Pastor Lee, he said these children were perfect. And so this, this documentary, it's, it's just great. And it, but it was made by this, this, man, this young man named Brian Ivey. And uh, Brian Ivey is a millennial, in or- lived in Orange County. And uh, he heard of the story and he, he, was, he was like, this has Sundance written all over it. And so motivated, you know, he, he thought he knew it would be great. He wanted to be famous. And so he goes and he makes this documentary. But in the process, he becomes a Christian. And then he, he was uh, being interviewed and, and somebody was asking him, well, how did this happen? Like, how did you become a Christian? I mean, what was it that sort of brought you over the line? And he said this. <clears throat> he says, I saw all these kids come through this drop box with deformities and disabilities. And eventually, I realized that I was one of those kids too that I have a crooked soul, all this brokenness inside, but God still wanted me. So he, he became a Christian because he began to identify with the orphan. And he realized that what Pastor John Lee was doing, God did for me. And he said, at first I had pity on these kids. At first I had compassion on them out of pity. But he says, once I realized that I was an orphan too, spiritually, Pity turned to kinship. This is what he said. He said, my heart moved from pity to kinship. And that's what compassion really needs to be. Kinship. Not paternalism. Not I've got all the power and I'm going to help this poor little person. But I was a spiritual orphan and God brought me in. I am a member of the quartet of the vulnerable. And what God has done for me, I want to go and do for others. James says you will care about the vulnerable when you understand the mark of true religion, the work of true religion, and the source of true religion. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks uh, talking more about this. And my prayer is that we might become a compelling community. That this church would not only, not only be marked by sermons and theology and preaching of the gospel, but we'd, be, we'd also be marked by a special care and concern for people on the margins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little, this little passage, and we pray, God, that you would uh, burn it into our hearts. God, that you would uh, give us eyes to see, give us uh, compassion, the same compassion that you have, that we might see all people as made in your image. And Father, that we might be so uh, 
moved with gratitude by what you've done for us that we go and do likewise. And Father, we pray that we could reach out with humility and diligence, that we could reach out with compassion, and that we might be a people that raise people out of their, their affliction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.